Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good evening, everyone. My name is Tanya Lentini, and I work in public programs here at ACME. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathered on the traditional land of the Kulin Nation and pay my respect to elders past and present. I'm delighted to welcome you to this evening's panel discussion, Raising the Bamboo Curtain and screening of the film A Touch of Sin. This event is part of our Perspectives on China Now series of talks and screenings, which will include screenings of Wong Kar Wai's epic masterpiece, The Grandmaster, which is next Monday evening, and the fascinating documentary, The Iron Ministry, on the 15th of March. Professor Kerry Brown, who is scheduled to appear, is unable to make it and sends his apologies. Fortunately, Nicole Talmax from the Department of Chinese Studies at the University of Sydney has kindly stepped in to replace Kerry. Um, in our discussions before, I was kind of thinking maybe a more productive way to think about this is China as a place where change is happening at an enormous pace. And that, to me, seems, um, I mean, a more productive way of thinking about the, uh, you know, the questions that we want to discuss rather than some sort of notion of the, the inscrutability of the Orient or anything like that. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I, I, I agree with Mike to some extent. Um, yes, we do exoticise quite a bit, uh, particularly the Chinese culture and civilization, and we have... Um, it's very easy to fall into that trap of assuming that Chinese are very different to Westerners. Um, but at the same time, particularly in contemporary China, there are actually quite a lot of um, social situations and conditions that make understanding Chinese society very different, well, very difficult and not as straightforward as perhaps maybe entering into research into France or Germany or a society, an advanced capitalist society that we recognise as being very similar to our own. And the example that um, I always draw upon is the idea of privilege and um, underprivilege in China because uh, we often assume that privilege also equates with income in um, Western societies. And in a place like China, um, often membership and relationship to um, something, uh, power sources such as the, the uh, Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, can actually make you more privileged and give you a whole lot more social power than simply just having money. So there are often um, underlying factors that are hidden in the way that Chinese society is organised that don't necessarily show themselves when we first enter into researching them. Yeah, I guess I'll just say very briefly that um, I think all societies are very complex. Um, Aborigines societies in Australia um, are also very complex with their own histories. Um, and perhaps the perception that China is complex is because um, of the, the big territories and um, a lot of different regional cultures and also the long borderlands that um, facilitated um, direct contact with other peoples. And so China, China's position in world history then becomes more complex as um, um, along its borders, there are different exchanges at different periods of time. But I, I also agree with the two other panelists that I think all societies are complex. And actually, um, research in China is made relatively easy because the Chinese language has been standardized for a long time. And so, so the 
written language across this vast territory, and including Japan and Korea, they also have the kanji tradition. And so linguistically, there is a um, you know, continuity and kind of a standardization that makes research um, slightly easier. The short talk I have prepared is um, basically an attempt to situate the film in terms of the context of the Chinese film industry, over, particularly over the last decade. Um, I mean, some of you probably know that China is now the second biggest box office in the world. Um, a decade ago, for the first time, it, it represented 1% of the world's box office. Currently, it's 13%. By the end of the decade, it's forecast that it will be 27% of the world's box office. Uh, and by the end of the decade, will become the biggest um, cinema box off, theatrical box office in the world. Um, so the story is one of kind of exponential growth. Uh, it's growing, Chinese cinema is growing um, at something like 30 to 35% year on year and keeps on growing at that rate. Um, one area, however, where there hasn't been growth over the last couple of years is in the number of films made. Uh, the number of, of films made in China peaked two years ago at 745, and for the last two years has been falling to 638 to 618 in, the, in 2014. Um, however, there are, I think, other things that need to be said, too. Of these films that are made, only the minority ever gets screened in China. So um, in a decade ago, something like 16% of the films made in China were ever screened there. Um, the last figure I've seen is 2012, something like 31% of the films made in China screened there. Um, what, at the same time, another change over the last couple of years is that Chinese film share of the box office has been going up. So two years ago, it was 48% of box office. Now, last, last year, uh, it was about 59%. So I think the picture I'm trying to paint is of the Chinese film industry becoming a more mature industry commercially. Um, a rise in box office, a drop in the, in the amount of production. So fewer films are being made, but more commercially oriented and bigger films are being made. In some ways, I mean, China has um, remarkably quickly um, kind of reinvented or reinvented itself as a kind of commercial film industry. Um, now, where does Judge and Kerr stand in this in tonight's film? Let me retreat a decade or so. Um, I think 10 years ago, we were seeing in some ways two Chinese cinemas, a split between big budget period films full of special effects, full of stars, often from Hong Kong, uh, prettied up wuxia films, uh, films like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hero, uh, House of Flying Daggers, films of this nature. Um, the market for these films, I think, was a mixture of the domestic market in China, but also the international market. There was a sense that these films could, could travel around the world, and certainly a film like Hero, picked up by Miramax in the United States, was commercially quite successful internationally. The other Chinese cinema at this time, though, was a small budget, was uh, um, small budget films, oftentimes socially critical of contemporary China, um, which oftentimes were labelled as kind of miserablest films, um, rather kind of unsuccessful protagonists wandering around grey cities, uh, chain-smoking and seemingly doing not a lot else. Um, and for one, for better or worse, Zhe Zhenkerb has in some ways became the most prominent filmmaker of this movement. Um, these films, of course, largely circulated in the West rather than in China um, and on the International Film Festival circuit uh, and were received in a very ambivalent way by Chinese audiences who largely ignored them and the Chinese government 
who oftentimes criticized them. So that when Zsa Zhenkur won the Golden Lion at Venice, uh, he, in um, I think 2007, 2008, he was promptly denounced by um, the head of the film bureau for making films which made Chinese people ashamed. Um, I think in some ways, what's the situation now? Well, this second strand of filmmaking that, that I sketched out before has largely, I think, collapsed in the last two years. Certainly these films seem to have disappeared largely from the international film festival market. I think there's a number of reasons for this. One is that many people saw them as, in some ways, now becoming kind of cliched or conventionalised. Um, perhaps as conventionalised and cliched in their own way as the kind of big budget wuxia films. And as I said, I think what we're seeing now is the emergence of a kind of robustly commercial cinema in China, but one which is very much geared to the domestic Chinese market. So instead of these period films, we're seeing now rom-coms. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen any Tiny Times films. They're kind of like you know, versions of Sex in the City. Um, or TV spin-offs. So, for instance, this week, um, a TV spin-off, The Running Man, just displaced the last Hobbit film at the top of the Chinese box office. What does Zsa Zhenkir do? Uh, I'm, you know, I think he's a... I think he's, um, He's tried a, you know, I mean, he's a filmmaker who seems to me clearly to be interested in trying a lot of things. And I see Touch of Sin in some ways as an attempt to merge this kind of cinema of social protest with genre elements. Uh, so, you know, you will note there are explosions, there's gunplay, there is violent intrigue in, um, in tonight's films. Um, and this is, I think, kind of one of several films of this type. So a film like Black Coal, Thin Ice, which won the Golden Bear at Berlin last year, uh, North by Northeast, another kind of recent Chinese films, are attempt to bring together uh, kind of the crime, crime elements, um, crime genre elements with this cinema of social protest. Um, I think Zsa Zhenkur is still, in some ways, looking to an international market, um, but he's exploring, I think, new ways to, uh, to rework and revise this kind of cinema of social protest to update it for or adapt it to this newly, um, this newly commercialised cinema, which has really taken off in China over the last two or three years. Um, have I had my five minutes? Can I keep going? I've been talking quickly, so I'll keep going. I'll just finish quickly. You know, I mean, I think Jar is, is kind of committed to to a theme, to kind of the thematic material which you'll see in tonight's film is is in some ways material of long standing. He's interested in the kind of the underbelly of the market of the new market economy. He's interested in the rootlessness, in some ways, of contemporary Chinese life. Uh, he's interested in characters with a lack of social and historical connection. Um, and it's particularly interesting that now, I mean, his new film, which is, uh, is just, you know, he, he just flew out of Melbourne today um, after shooting in Australia for two weeks, I think, um, is an attempt to transfer this sense of a kind of cultural rootlessness um, outside of China to the Chinese diaspora in Australia. I totally agree with you that in this film, Jia Zhangke is trying to, to move to a more commercial approach to cinema while keeping the thematic focus on social justice and, and inequality and things like that, as you said. Um, but unfortunately, this film hasn't been shown in China, um, and it, it's, uh, it's because of the, the censoring bodies in China that haven't uh, yet uh, approved um, this film. So, so in, in that, the commercial aspiration didn't materialize. Um, yeah, but I, I also um, uh, hearing your speak about the cinema of miseries, and I happen to be a lover of cinema of miseries, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just want to say a few things 
for that um, type of cinema and also to, to say why they disappeared. Because Jia Zhangke was very much, Jia Zhangke came into age um, in the 1990s, and his first film was made in 1997. It was, uh, it was exactly the film like what you talked about, you know, a, a youngster um, wandering around um, quite aimlessly. But his wandering around for a Chinese audience uh, wasn't um, disconnection, actually, because everywhere he went, he encountered media that the Chinese, film, uh, Chinese people were practicing, you know, that singing in the streets, songs that we learned when we were a, a child. And so all these media bits, all these memory bits that that were gathered together as this person walks and as this person dealt with his own problems. And so it was to connect with the memories um, of a socialist past and then uh, you know, seeing the, the broken promises of Chinese socialism and then in this backwater uh, you know, little town having no, no future to look forward to as socialism is all, was all about future. Um, and so, so for me, it was very very nostalgic, and it was um, a way to deal with that experience. But the problem, so, so Jia Zhangke really um, grew, and, and also in the 1990s and early 2000s, it was a period when indie cinema mm -hmm. grew very much in China, and I was uh, quite involved in that. I was in the, I was participating in the film festivals, and these were underground, no, exactly underground, independent uh, film festivals in Beijing, Nanjing, and uh, Chongqing. But in the past three years, the government had cracked down repeatedly on them, raiding their offices and taking, you know, taking their archived materials and basically shutting them down. So I think that these indie films, which you know, uh, really a lot of young film graduates participated in, because they had no money to make commercial films, and even if they made commercial films, they wouldn't be screened, as you know, 30% got screened, um, because the market was so tight and, and so inundated by um, imports uh, from, from America. So these indie films really, really breeding grounds, incubators um, that that really, um, you know, upheld the ideal of cinema as an art um, and like a subculture. But now the government, on one hand, increases the commercialization; on the other hand, crack down on this breeding ground for ideals. And so I feel that actually Jia Zhangke could still do that now, you know. But the next generation of filmmakers may not be able to do that, um, you know, because there will not be this cradle. Um, for them. Not only not be able, but it also has to do with the incentives. Um, many of the fifth generation film directors actually have gone on to make a lot of money with their productions. Uh, Zhang Yimou is a perfect example of that. And for any up-and-coming film director in China, there is an incentive to toe the line. There is an incentive to self-censor and if you're lucky, maybe co-produce with international film directors and do what you want to do outside of that realm. So there are two sides to it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I mean, a lot of what I'm going to say uh, matches and complements what Mike has told you already about the mature, maturity of the coming maturity, I should say, of Chinese, uh, the Chinese commercial film market. Um, what I did for my doctoral project, I should give you an introduction to that before I give you my findings, um, was to run focus groups um, throughout China, five different cities, so Lanzhou, Hangzhou, Nanjing, Beijing and Taiwan. Um, and I ran focus groups with over 200 uh, Chinese nationals. And I wanted to see whether class made a difference to not only reception of contemporary Chinese cinema, but understanding. So not only whether they liked or disliked the films, but whether they also interpreted the films in the same way. And um, to, to explain, the groups were basically... I, I tried to put the groups together with the same type of social class, although I'm using that term very loosely here. Um, but they were social groups that consisted of migrant workers, um, professors, uh, academics, students, um, professionals it, working in government and cinema, and um, uh, migrant workers that worked in service areas such as the KTV, um, karaoke bar industry. And, um, and what I found was that uh, 
I kind of went in with this expectation that everyone was going to the cinemas and everyone was accessing this booming film industry. But actually what I found was that the only people who were going to the cinemas and paying tickets were 21 to 35-year-olds who were highly privileged, who came from families with political connections, who had gone to university and had, were well-educated. Um, and the other majority of Chinese society, which actually equate, if you look at statistics, to approximately 85% of China's population who were working in unskilled and semi-skilled labour, um, didn't even know where their local cinema was, even if they were living in um, large cities. They didn't know that they could go online and find discount tickets. And most of them worked, uh, you know, seven days a week. They got one day off a, a month um, for their free time. And the last thing they wanted to do was to go to a cinema where they expected to pay 100 kwai, which equates to about $15, I think, if the exchange rate is right. Um, to but, pay for but Nicole, I mean, yeah. if you, as a percentage of average weekly earnings, mm -hmm. it would be the equivalent of Absolutely. us paying $200 to go to the movies. That's right. So their average earnings were about 1,200 kwai to about 1,700, which should be about $200, $250. So for them, it's a lot of money to go to the local cinema. And so they just didn't do that. Um, what they chose to do uh, was to watch TV series on television. And you've also got to keep in mind that a lot of them lived in dormitories within the workplace that they um, were employed by. And so the ease of individual activities wasn't really there. They really had to do communal watching of television TV shows um, late in the evening. So really when we're talking about the Chinese film industry in this booming box office, we're talking about a very elite audience member who's going along to, to watch them. And, um, and I'd like you to keep that in mind, particularly with something like A Touch of Sin, because the idea that Jia Junker worked very closely with the cens censorship board and anticipated um, a cinema release of this film, uh, it makes you question why they were nervous, because they knew that it wasn't going to be the working class, the disaffected, angry working classes that were going to go and see this, but rather the educated elite and young educated elite who will be the cultural, political and economic leaders of China's future and they've really squashed those kind of spreading of these ideas amongst that, that type of audience, mm. which in itself is, um, you know, a bit disconcerting. Um, the one thing that I found, though, with my research was I was... This um, dichotomy, like the, the worker and the owner of capital, um, it's not just in art house cinema. These narratives exist all through mainstream Chinese cinema and it's become such a normalised concept that the great majority of the films that were put out there, I was expecting anger, resentment, um, declarations of desires for mobilisation from those who were disadvantaged in China's society but rather the impression was given that, well, this is it, you know, there's little we can do to change the system. Um, and that I found very surprising because particularly if, um, we're going to hear a bit later about socialist propaganda cinema, but the ideals of Chinese cinema in recent modern history was to mobilise the masses and to politically educate China's um, audiences. So on the one side, we've got the workers who kind of say, well, there's nothing much more we can do about these narratives that you're telling us. But on the other side, um, the educated audiences, what they were watching, actually reaffirmed the reason why they should maintain their positions of privilege. Rather than watching and saying, oh, we should band it together, we need to change the system, um, a lot of the rhetoric that I was hearing was, well, there's a reason for it. They're from the village. They're not educated. Um, they male soldier, like they don't have any principles or they're not civilised. And this type of language is actually very disconcerting as, as a social researcher, but it's indicative of the way that um, 
the, the miserable storyline can actually be commercialised with a lot of freedom and confidence on the part of the Chinese party state who can be assured that actually the great majority of the people who watch their films will not be mobilised into action. Yeah, I actually, uh, this is really interesting um, research finding because I, I don't, I don't know if Jia Zhang could knows about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just think that um, the cinematic culture in China has changed so much that um, you know, cinema today in China is a totally different thing from cinema when Jiang Zhangke was growing up. Um, because Jiang Zhangke came from a you know, humble background, uh, living in a um, very quite remote, uh, not you know, just backwater town um, in Shanxi province, famous for the for the coal mines, and um, but he he developed a love for cinema because when he was a child and he was born 1970, so he he grew up in the 70s and 80s, and China's reform started really in the middle of the 1980s. So so he he grew up with state-sponsored film screenings, which were mostly a lot of times free to workers and you know mobile. Um, projectionists would take films to villages and to, to um, armies and to, to all over the place. And so when we think about the socialist modernity of China, cinema was a very, very important medium. Actually, it was a medium that the state wanted to use that medium to replace um, traditional ways of entertainment. You know, in Chinese countryside, um, before 49, before the Communist Party took over, um, the Chinese countryside, their um, entertainment was largely organized by local elites who would you know, provide entertainment for the villagers and you know, the villagers were all his t uh, tenants and so on. Of course, the land reform removed local elites. So the, the countryside were left with um, you know, not so much organization. And so cinema was brought in um, as, as a state-made product, because you can't really change the cinema, you know, you can't really, um, you know, do like a, a theater that mock some of the some of the ideology. I mean, cinema was made as an inflexible uh, industrial product, and it was brought into villages. And some villages didn't even have electricity, so the the, the first mm -hmm. encounter with electricity was with cinema. So, so cinema was like a harbinger of a socialist um, modernization, modernity, and so so. This created in China a big uh, base of uh, you know people who love cinema, and uh, this Jia Zhangke's generation, generation earlier, um, these were filmmakers who grew up in that culture, and I think that Jia Zhangke probably got into filmmaking because he anticipated that his films would be watched by the majority of people, but and obviously not. So it's a really interesting, yeah. Um, I ran surveys uh, with each of my participants um, before we started the film screenings and the discussions. And um, I asked them to list their favorite films. Um, and I was very surprised that uh, almost 20 to 30% of the migrant workers, factory workers and service workers actually listed a television TV show um, for their favourite film because the concept of a film um, was so foreign to them that they knew of a 30-part series that they would watch on television as opposed to a movie that they would even download. Um, but the fifth generation uh, uh, directors, um, which is particularly that artistic period, sorry, period after the economic reforms, which is where Jia Jiangke and Chen Kaige and Jiang Yimou all kind of stem from, um, really only got listed on about five or six surveys. And they were people who were, one, who was already a director at the CCTV studios, um, two, who had masters and PhDs in humanities, and um, people who had lived overseas for an extended period of time. So that reach of artistic cinema is very, very limited in, in China, which is a sorry state of affairs, really. Mm. Well, I mean, your, uh, your findings about television are kind of really interesting to me because um, I think the biggest grossing film in China last year was, was it Where Are We Going Today, Dad? Dad? Yeah. Which basically is a reality TV show in which 
famous people take their single child out for a day somewhere, isn't it? And and you know, this gets turned into uh, into the the number one movie. I mean, it's also. I mean, I find very interesting the um, your sense of of the limitations on the audience because I mean, throughout international cinema, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about what happens by the end of this decade when the Chinese box if the Chinese box office continues to grow at the rate as it is, does China, in some ways, does Chinese cinema replace Hollywood? Mm. Um, I mean, this is a prospect which. He's given. He's been given kind of like you know serious discussion at the moment. I mean, I'm interested in hearing other people's opinions on this maybe later. But I, I mean, I'm skeptical sure. about whether it will. But you know, it's, I certainly believe that China's presence on the global film industry has applied some pressure on Hollywood productions to accommodate for a Chinese audience. Um, I had the pleasure of seeing Looper in Beijing, um, and that point where, um, gosh, what's his name? Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, thank you. I had his face in my... Um, when he turns around in Chinese, says, what well, I need to his, which is, I love you, mm. the whole cinema exploded in laughter. I mean, probably mm. in the West, we were really impressed that mm. Bruce Willis knew how to say, I love you mm. in Chinese. But for the, the Chinese, particularly an elite and sophisticated audience, is very aware of what Hollywood's trying to do to appeal to them as an audience. Um, another example is Pacific Rim, where you had a couple of the robots that were designed in China. 2012, at the movie 2012, at the end, everyone gets onto a ship and they say, trust the Chinese to have made a ship like this. It's being dropped into a whole lot of chi uh, uh, Hollywood films and Hollywood films that anticipate getting a release in China. So I actually do think that they're already applying pressure and some influence on Hollywood to change particularly their big blockbuster narratives to incorporate um, China and positive elements of uh, Chinese society. Yeah. I don't know if they'll actually overtake Hollywood, but... <laughs> Okay, um, yeah, I, I um, was given this topic of um, cinema's engagement with modernity, and I thought, oh, you know, cinema's engagement with modernity in China really started more than 100 years ago <laughs> in the, um, the, the end of the 19th century when cinema arrived in China 1896, just one year after it was invented. Um, and cine cinema arrived um, in the treaty ports that were opened um, in, you know, along Chinese um, southeast um, coasts. And that was, of course, a, a result of the, the treaties that the, the Qing or the Manchu um, government, the, the last dynasty of China, had signed with Western powers after um, a number of unsuccessful battles, um, including the Opium War, of course, in um, 18. 40 to 42. So, so really, cinema's arrival to China came at a time when China, um, you know, felt the need. I mean, to reform. It came at the late Manchu Dynasty, late Qing Dynasty when constitutionalism, constitutional monarchy uh, was on the table. Um, and then, um, within you know, just less than well, a bit more than 10 years, then uh, the, uh, the revolution overtook uh, the dynasty, and then um, you know, we, had, we had a republic, and then there were, there were um, you know, resistance wars to Japan, and then the, the civil war between the Chinese communists and, and nationalists. And so, so it was, you know, cinema really came and developed in this, in this tremendously um, transformative period. And therefore, cinema had, um, has a really complex relationship with modernity. On one hand, um, from the beginning of the 20th century, Chinese uh, modernizing you know, reformers, um, they looked to cinema as a modern medium to solve modern problems. And what were the modern problems of China? That was you know, colonialism, um, that was um, political reform, and industrialization. Because at the time, industrialization was seen as a key to, to national survival, right? Because you, with, with industrialization, you can have weapons, and, and you, can, you can resist, and so on. So, so um, 
so cinema, for example, was was um, you know people talked about cinema's use in voter education. You know when when the republic was founded, there there started to be voting, and so how do you educate people to vote? And so cinema was uh, was used for voter education in Italy, and then so people talked, oh, we should use that because Western nations they had voting and and they use cinema for that, and we could do that too, and and also for for industrial um, for. For labor, labor uh, technical training, for example, Germany and, and the states were using cinema to train workers um, to and for routine work, and then so we should have that too because, you know, and and China at that time didn't even have a film industry; they couldn't produce even film, right? Um, so that was it, it's such a highly desirable, converted Western technology that could speak to people, and even constitutionalism needed mass. Self-governance, you know, local governance. So, 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 cinema for them became this medium um, that would deliver China into modernity. But at the same time, uh, when Chinese, um, you know, businessmen or you know, Chinese, um, you know, photographers, when they started to make film, instead of making films that deliver China to modernity. They looked backwards. They had black, backward glances. And the first film made in China was made in 1905. And it was a Peking opera film showcasing martial art you know, sword play, choreographed sword play um, by this very famous um, Peking opera singer. Um, I mean, it was silent film. So it was really the choreograph that was shown, showcased. Um, and cinema had a deep relationship with China's vernacular literature and China's Chinese theater, which um, you know, basically were story cycles uh, from, from oral traditions um, about kings and, and queens and uh, knight errands and, and about uh, women Reve revengers, avengers, and so about brotherhood and loyalty and disloyalty. And so, so you know, cinema was used to, to almost to, to salvage the Chinese uh, traditional culture um, as, as almost impulsive. It was very impulsive, uh, I think, at the time. And, and at the same time, cinema was also used in the 1920s. So 1920s was this first wave of you know, Chinese cinema. It was also used to depict the undersides of modernization, and basically you know, urban crimes, um, detective stories, you know, ghastly murders, and things like that. And so you, you see already cinema's engagement with, with modernity came from all sides, and it was very ambivalent. And then coming to Jia Zhangke, because I talked a bit about the Mao period, and the Mao period was basically a continuation of this modernizing drive. Even though now we look back, we think Mao era was very, you know, feudalistic, and it was uh, it was very backward. But it was modernistic. It was it was modernist. I mean, to to create individuals suitable for socialism. I mean, in this teleological history, socialism was even more advanced than capitalism. And that whole project was a modern project. And so cinema was fully re um, uh, used into that project. And also the ambivalence of cinema was entirely crushed um, during the Mao period because it became, you know, uh, like you probably have heard about these political controls on cinema. Because cinema is such an ambivalent medium, I mean, you know, an image can say so many things. It's so ambivalent that the control on cinema become more and more through the Mao period, uh, just to get rid of these, you know, reflections and critiques of the state-led uh, modern modernization. So when I come to Jia Zhangke, Jia Zhangke really belongs to a generation of uh, Chinese filmmakers who have gone through, you know, had in their minds these waves of modernization. You know, that modernization during the Republican period, a forced modern modernity, uh, uh, like a, a borrowed modernity from, and, and, and resistance to colonial colonialization. Um, and then uh, the, the socialist modernity, which also took huge tolls on, on Chinese people, based, you know, the, the, the thinking about a modern future and then sacrificing, um, you know, the, the present. And so, so when it comes to Jia Zhangke, um, he shared, um, he, you know, a lot of similar thinking with um, the Italian neorealists, for example, or with the French uh, new, new wave. All, all these traditions um, were somehow uh, disillusioned by this 
this drive to modernize and also the, the inherent violence involved in the modern you know, in the modern world with people with, with nations fighting each other and so on and so so he he acknowledged um, influence from these traditions uh, from the Italian neorealist um, and uh, and French new wave basically you know looking at the, the everyday everyday life looking at people who are confused and clumsy and not engineered you know looking at the the ruins of, of modernization. Um, and then um, he also draw on new Hong Kong and Taiwan cinema, because Hong Kong and Taiwan were also experiencing similar thoughts, even though theirs were colonial modernity or capitalist modernity, but they were you know, encountering similar problems. And so Hong Kong films uh, look into the under ground of you know, uh, urban crime to, to you know, a, a very confusing mix of, of um, kind of brotherhood and loyalty, all these traditional uh, Chinese uh, morals with a capitalist um, you know, money exchange society. And also Taiwan cinema's um, very lyrical and sad depiction of urbanization and of leaving the lush um, you know, countryside, uh, in rice growing countryside into, into the urban space and all the, all the uh, you know, things cherished by people you know, in their Childhood get lost during that modernization process, and so so Jia Zhangke really um, shared a lot of similar um, concerns with these with with. with Sort of these cinematic traditions, and so when today when you look at this film, there are four episodes. Um, perhaps you can uh, try to see, um, you know, if you recognize some of these episodes um, in other cinematic traditions, and also in China's own cinematic tradition. Um, I think that some, you know, some character, the character types in these films, um, often when I see them, it reminds me of, of, you know character types in, in these cinematic traditions. Um, for example, I mean, Jia Zhangke also um, draws from uh, the Chinese, you know, the Chinese martial arts genre, and this film's title was uh, a tribute to a Hong Kong martial arts film uh, called A Touch of Zen, or, or the, the Female Knight Errant, and it was made in the 1970s, and it was a very expressive landscape um, and uh, very interesting drama. So, so, and also one of his characters, um, for me, looked a bit like the, you know, Sort of revolutionary opera in the in the Cultural Revolution, you know this kind of hero figure. So so the camera work really portrayed this hero figure, and he he kind of fit the socialist hero figure. But then somehow, of course, you know he's not a hero figure, and so you see this play, this tribute, these tributes to to the cinematic traditions he he, he feels he's a part of. Um, Jia Zhangke. Is um, is a filmmaker deeply aware of um, cinematic um, history. Um, he he's he's incredibly and, and you know incredibly well um, viewed. Um, well well you know he, he watches um, a lot of a lot a lot of films and he, he crafts his films um, with these things in mind. So. Yeah, I, I was just thinking so much of. Um, particularly when we talk about Jia Zhangke, it has this f feeling of tradition. And when I look at um, commercial cinema, mainstream cinema in China, it feels like something completely new and fresh and dislocated from the past and the past that you're talking of anyhow. Um, and I think that brings back um, this... this notion we're talking about of China maybe even taking over Hollywood or whatever it might be, but the it's, it's a social issue about generations that kind of the 20-year-old the of China today is not the same as the 20-year-old only 10 years ago or in the 70s, and that is phenomenal. Like, that is something that we cannot grasp here in the West, but um, it talking about trying to make... Uh, social critique, something that's commercial for a cinema uh, ticket-buying audience, you really need to be that 20-year-old who knows what that 20-year-old's thinking. And it's very difficult, I think, for particularly, I wouldn't say ageing, he's certainly by no means old, he's only late 40s, um, but that's considered old almost in China. It's like you're an old generation. And I think particularly the... Um, 
uh, more prominent and prominently known Chinese film directors really have to struggle against tradition to create something that makes sense to the young Chinese people going to the cinemas now? Well, I think one of the things that really interests me about Jia Zhenker as a director is that, I mean, he's willing to try a whole, you know, to try a range of different approaches so that, you know, in some ways, I mean, when the, the, the this kind of sixth generation miserablest film <laughs> looks like a dead end, you know, I mean, he's, do, he's making online films, I mean, even things, you know, like the, this series of Johnny Walker shorts that he made that are online that, you know, praise, you know, it's, it's about time we said something good about China. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he's, uh, you know, I mean, there's talk for a long time that he's making a martial arts film um, with Johnny To in Hong Kong. Um, now he's making a film in Australia. Uh, I mean, I think he realises that the, the thing he's chosen to do is pretty tough. Um, and, um, I mean, he's really kind of like, you know, exploring different kinds of avenues to, um, to try to keep, in some ways, to try to keep on making the same film, to try to keep on making the film that, the types of films that he wants to make, that to be able to keep on making the films that he wants to make, he has to change. Um, and, you know, the types of films he, he makes to stay the same have to change and change radically. So I think, it's, you know, I mean, it's very interesting to see, you know, like what's going to happen in this area. I'm perhaps, I mean, I think Nicole summed it up well to, to talk, you know, like how can you make films of social protest in a commercial environment? Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure anybody really has an answer to that question. Um, and in some ways, I mean, from what I see, I still think he's, you know, I mean, these films are still going to appeal in some ways more internationally than to a domestic audience. I mean, the genre elements he's appealing to aren't the elements of the romantic comedy or, you know, the kinds of um, you know, young urban elites that you see as, as, I think, at the core of cinema audiences. Um, but there are these kind of like genre elements of the thriller and the, the policière and things like that. So, um, and you know, I mean, the connection to European and Japanese funding that has always been behind his work, I think still seems very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I think no, in I some th- ways, I mean, while it's very easy for us to talk about censorship in China, as I said, I think the commercialization of the market exerts a much stronger... Um, repressive effect than any government ever can. I'm actually based in Shanghai and um, one of the things I love about living in China is getting to uh, interact with Chinese people. Yeah? Um, and when I come back to Melbourne, um, whenever I sort of you know, turn the TV on or see anything in the media, it's something that's usually really high level, like about politics or you know, GDP growth, something really macro and unrelated to individual people. Um, so broad question is, what do you think is the role of uh, cinema in helping people outside of China to better understand Chinese people? Thanks. Hmm. I think um, the, the problem is that the films that we get outside of China are not the films that Chinese people are watching um, we are not getting Let the Bullets Fly, we're not getting Go La La Go, we're not getting Tiny Times, which actually do tell you stories about values that Chinese people, either that Chinese people have or that the filmmakers in cahoots with the censorship board ex- want to propagate in China as being the, the values that Chinese people should have. Um, we're not getting those films here. And... A perfect example, um, there was a, it was kind of like a workshop that was being run in Beijing where they brought American filmmakers into do kind of like a co-production workshop with Chinese filmmakers and 
the Americans were coming up with pitching stories. Basically, you had to workshop an idea and pitch the story to, to the group. And then the Chinese film directors would tell the Americans what they had got wrong. And the American directors would tell the Chinese what they had got wrong. And the perfect example, or an example I thought which was quite interesting, was um, they'd written a rom-com, because we all know rom-coms sell really well in China. So this American young graduate had uh, written this story about a young couple that meet in Tiananmen, and they fall passionately in love at Tiananmen Square. And the Chinese were absolutely horrified. Why would you run... uh, Why would you set love in a place that's got such a political history... Um, and on top of that is a place that only tourists go. No Chinese person would ever go there. And it just exemplified uh, the cultural misunderstandings that filmmakers have and audiences expect of Chinese films and what Chinese films expect of... uh, or what Chinese expect Westerners to portray them as, if that makes sense. And I think that... That is that cultural discord that exists. So in the West, we don't want to... Or if we do watch these films, we can't comprehend them because they have Chinese characteristics. And therefore, the easiest thing to do is to have a wuxia film, uh, kung fu or something set in a mystical land uh, with colours and so on. Because a lot of the time, uh, this we don't know about China we are actually very ignorant about China, in particularly in Australia, I think. But that's my personal opinion. But I'll just um, uh, say one yeah. thing. But actually, I think this film is is really good. This one is, yeah, and, and, that's I, right. and I think that more and more, more people should come to, to this film. Because I actually still believe in the power of the artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, so, so I mean, we, we should see films that Chinese audience watch. Um, but, you know, Oftentimes, audience are given things to watch um, by by corporations. I mean, if we if we look at what Australians watch, can we really understand Australian society? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that's that's also another question because there's a huge cultural industry um, out there. Um, I I think you know, I think that Jia is in, in in this film. It, it he is trying to communicate to a wider audience, like uh, Mike said, um, to wider wider audience. And um, but but he at the same time also, you know, these are all real stories. I mean, the, all these all four episodes actually happened in reality, and they became international uh, internet sensations. And then he adapted it. Uh, for the screen, and, and in there you you see you can see you know cinema's relation with Chinese theater. You see cinema's relation with uh, with martial arts, and you also see him um, using his camera so affectionately on some of the weakest people in China. Um, Andre Bazin said, um, you know, a French um, film commentator said that uh, filming cinema is an act of love. You know, when you film something, you are caressing, you are caressing that object. And, um, and you know, so, so throughout Chinese cinematic history, you have cinema directed at different objects of love, different objects of desire, right? And, and you know, that the, the can be, you know, the socialist worker, or it can be, you know, some modern, um, some, some modernity. And then uh, for Jia Zhangke's generation, it's these people who are lost, uh, who, who are losers. And, and um, you, you see that emotion uh, in, in his camera. And so I think that it, it is a good film to know about Chinese society. Yeah, I mean, my, my quick response to your question would be films don't, you know, I mean, films don't reflect societies in any simple way. I mean, I got interested in Asian films because I loved these terrifically violent films that were being made in Hong Kong in my youth. And, um, you know, I mean, I go to Hong Kong quite frequently now and I feel much safer in Hong Kong um, than I do, you know, like walking around Melbourne oftentimes. Um But, you know, I mean, I think artworks are imaginative games and, you know, films, although they might not reflect society in a simple, straightforward way, in some ways kind of, like, reflect the imaginative games people are playing it, people are finding attractive at various times in various places. I mean, that's the closest I could get to answering your question. You have been listening to an ACME podcast.
For more recordings of talks and live events, go to ACME Channel and the ACME website.